Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Well, they really coincide with the message this morning as we're going to find after the creation of the great, wonderful world and Adam and Eve, God has called them to be hungry for them, but yet they find satisfaction elsewhere. In Genesis, we find that God has been displaying His character in through the world He has created. And we've been looking at, is Genesis just real, or is it just a story? Is it a list of fables or myths? What is Genesis? Can we take it for what it truly is? Was there a God who created all things, or is evolution truly the answer? Is there truly a historical Adam and Eve? And what about marriage? And so we've been looking at that as we've been going through Genesis. And we will follow the same format as we look at Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis, we find that though we may not have all the answers you and I seek, we will find that the purpose of Genesis is not a scientific and anthropologic type defense of God and Christianity. But in Genesis, we find that God is displaying his character. And he displays his character in the good world that he created. He's revealed that he is a creative God who is intelligent, imaginative, and complex as the world is imaginative and creative and complex. He's displayed his character in making a man to be his mediator and representative over all of creation. Remember, they were to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue and have dominion over all the things, over all creation. And not only that, but he showed and displayed his character in creating a helper specifically fit for Adam and for joining them in a special union called marriage, and that's where we were last week. The theme now moves from creation, and remember, I've shared with you, the Bible may be 66 books, but there's really only one story with four main themes or chapters, so to speak. The theme now moves from creation and moves to what we call the fall, F-A-L-L, the fall, as a third character is introduced into the story. The story of creation takes an abrupt turn with the introduction of sin as man disobeys God's command and fails to fulfill his mandate to guard and keep and protect the woman and the garden. So in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to make some observations. And Father, before we read your word, I would ask that you would come and inform us I pray that you would help us to understand your word. May your Holy Spirit inform our hearts. May it find deep roots. May it find fertile uh, uh, soil. May it grow from there. And may we learn to trust your word and respond positively to your word. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me, that as I speak, let me speak clearly. Let me speak words that are edifying. And Lord, let me speak what your word has And Lord, give us the discernment to know between your word and just private and personal opinions. 
And Lord, may you do a great work this morning, we pray. Amen. As you turn to Genesis chapter 1, I want to look at some different observations here, or a few observations. The first observation we're going to make is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. As the new character is introduced, we've seen God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we saw that on the sixth day, He created man. And after Adam naming the animals, see that there's no one for him to help him to fulfill his mandate. God creates woman and gives them in holy matrimony. And now all of a sudden we see a new character come in. In verse 1 we see, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord God had made. And so we see, who is this serpent? This snake. Was it real or is it a literary device? And many people have been questioning it. I'll have to say, just in just looking at this and exploring this and researching it myself, you can find as many theories as you can shake a stick at. Everyone has their own kind of feeling who this snake or who this serpent is. But I want to share with you, I believe Scripture gives us the identity of who this serpent was. In Revelations chapter 12, he kind of gives us a little bit of understanding. When he says in Revelation chapter 12, John writes, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So Revelation really gives us a clearer understanding of who this serpent is that was the deceiver of the whole world. In Ezekiel chapter 28, I want to give you a little bit more information. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. And this here, by the way, this is all free. This is not going to cost you anything. This is information you can kind of take and look at it. Not necessarily germane to the theme, but it's always nice to kind of understand who we're talking about when we're introduced in a story. I just, uh, I just love, I love reading, by the way, fiction. And it's always nice when they kind of give you a description of the character in the background. But in Ezekiel chapter 28, we see that there is a prophecy against one of the kings. And even though it starts as a prophecy about one of the human kings, in this case of Tyre, the king of Tyre, it also, we see, has a little bit more prophetic group. And Scripture is very clear that. One of the things we need to understand, when Scripture is talking about one of it, many times it expands and takes in other themes. For those of you who are able to find Ezekiel chapter 28, look in verse 12. Verse 12, we see this introduction. It says, well, in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, rise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So it's about Tyre, but as you're going to see, it's going to expand a little bit bigger. And say to him, thus saith the Lord God. Look at verse 12. Uh, 12. It says, you were a signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, 
and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. We see a beautiful, beautiful person here. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created till righteousness was found in you. Obviously, this is not speaking here about a human king. He's using the human king to explain something a little bit bigger than just man. For this, we see what he was in the Garden of Eden. And we see a a beautiful creature who stands before God. Now, now turn backwards, if you would, in your Bible to Isaiah. For in Isaiah chapter 14, we see something very, very similar in chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 12. Here he's he's, uh, making a prophecy against the king of Babylon. Again, we get a sense that something more is going on than just a simple rail against a human king. For he says in verse 12 of chapter 14, he goes, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Who is this serpent? He's Satan, as we see in Revelation. He was an angel, once standing for the very presence of God. I like to think of him as we see, he was one who had a special position before God. Very beautiful. I can imagine as I see, and he describes all these diamonds and jewels that just cover him. He was something that was beautiful. I tend to think that Satan was probably the, the worship pastor of, the, of heaven. I tend to believe, as it says, that he was up there and he was above God, or not above God, but he was above all other angels. And could you imagine a creature with all those jewels? And what would you see in heaven but the glory of God. And as you can imagine something of jewels, what would it do in with such light? It would start to reflect it, would it not? And I can imagine Satan as he's up there leading the worship of God, and all of a sudden he sees from himself all sorts of shining and beautiful light coming out. And eventually, instead of recognizing that the light was only a reflection of the true light, he began to believe that he was the light. It would be like the moon saying, look how bright I shine. Look how beautiful I am. Look at all the songs written about me, never realizing. That's a dead piece of rock that reflects the light of the sun. That's how I like to imagine Satan. And one day in looking at all his beauty and his power, he himself said, I will. He had an eye problem called pride. So somewhere we see the introduction of Satan. At one moment everything is good, but then all of a sudden we see a creature in sin who is cast out of heaven. Jesus we see in Luke chapter 10. 
says that he was present when Satan fell from heaven. For he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So who is this serpent? Satan. It says that he's crafty. Now when you and I think of the word crafty, it usually comes more in a negative form, does it not? But it's not so much a negative term, but denotes wisdom and shrewdness. He was subtle. Now here's where I need to make a point, because here's where many of us get frustrated. Because we want to know, well, what about the Satan? Was it a, was it a talking, walking snake? Was it truly a serpent in, in the way that we know it? Unfortunately, Genesis does not answer all of those types of questions for us. And many times in answering some of the questions, we wound up asking more. But Genesis does not exist to tell us all of our questions and all of the things that we could imagine. Did all snakes have the ability to speak? I don't think so. Was Eve, why was Eve not shocked that it could? Did it have legs? Did it have wings? Did it, what did it look like? We don't know. All we do know is that Satan embodied this creature and used it for his own purposes. So the serpent was more crafty. And we see the introduction of a new character into the beauty and the, the, uh, the setting of the garden. The second observation we find in verses 2 through 6, as Adam fails to protect and guard his wife and the garden from this evil. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, for as we see, he says, Beast of the field the Lord God had made. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was light to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate also. Some simple observation. As we look at this and the Satan begins to, to tempt and to, and to entice her to disobey God. And he uses scripture what's interesting. As Satan tries to create a wedge between husband and wife and his creator. We see that the woman eventually adds to God's word. As he just says, Are you not, you're not to eat of it. He says, well, we're not only to eat of it, but we're not to touch it. Again, another way. We always like to add to God's word, do we not? We always want to set those lines. Now, whether that comes from uh, Adam's or Eve's own mind, or maybe even Adam's instructions to her to protect her, we don't know, but yet we find that she adds to it. And what we find here, and this is important, and this is what's going to happen every time, is Satan questions the goodness and the wisdom of God. That's what he's doing here with these questions. He's going to question the goodness of God. He even denies God's judgment. You will not surely die. And then we see she looked, she desired, and she took. Her sin were little subtle steps of decision making. 
The last point I make in the observation is that Adam was with her. And when I say that he didn't guard or protect, that's what happens. Adam fails to do what God has called him to do. And I think that's so important from the passage of Scripture that Dustin read last week in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says that the husband is to love the wife, and he's to protect her, and to present her blameless before God, as Christ does that with His church. And let me say as a side note, again, this is free men. If you're married, one of the things that God has called you to do is to protect and guard your wife and your family by extension. For we too are in a world in which Satan will deny the goodness and wisdom of God, in which he will try to put a wedge against you. Remember I said last week, Satan's desire is to destroy your marriage and your family. That's he wants to do. He wants to destroy and, and, and taint every relationship you're in. But Adam fails to protect and guard his wife. The very thing that God calls him to do. In verse 17, I want to give you the third observation very quickly as we see the response to Adam and Eve's, or Adam and Eve's response to their disobedience. Look at verse 7. So in verse 7, we find verse 6, we see that they, they decide, let's take of it. We believe what this serpent is saying rather than God. And it says the result of that is that their eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, man said, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, God responds by saying, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said, the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The innocence of the garden is shattered. Remember, we're ended. It was all very good, God said, and he rested. But here we have day 8 or 9 or 10. I'm not sure the time frame. Scripture doesn't tell us. The innocence is shattered. Instead of walking with God and communion with God, we see now their attitude and their spirits are they're afraid of God as they try to hide from Him and cover up their disobedience. They try to hide from Him. We find that we can no hide, we can no longer hide from God. Where do you go from the east to west, to the highest to the deepest? You can never escape from the Creator. And how do they respond to disobedience to the questions of God? They play the blame game. They act like they're a bunch of two and three year olds. Well, he made me do it. Well, he did it. Not I, not me. You can see that playing its game throughout the ages. We live in a day of age where we can do that, right? If we have a problem, if we have a habit, if we have an addiction, if we have a problem, whether in our marriages or at work, 
or some type of personal down. All we have to do is go to a therapist or a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or someone else who will tell me it's not your fault. Right? You have guilt. You have shame. It must be your parents' fault. It must have been something that happened to you in the womb or the way that you grew up. Or they may say, you know what? Shame and guilt. There is no such thing as shame and guilt. You and I know very clearly that there is. We may no longer sow fig leaves and hide from God in the trees, but our shame and guilt is up front and center, and we try to hide it in many different ways. Hence why many addictions, whether it's drinking or drugs or gambling or any other types of things that, that, that we find, we use those to medicate ourselves from the shame and guilt. We just don't want to remember, correct? Isn't that how we are? We don't want to think. We don't want to dwell on it. We try to hide in so many different ways. So in here we see the introduction of a new character, Satan. The great dragon. The serpent. We see that Adam fails to protect his wife and the garden from the evil from that comes within there. And we see the response to disobedience is very similar to our own. Now I want to stop here because I say, what does this mean for us? Again, does Genesis have anything to do with us? I'm here to tell you it does. Though this book may be thousands of years old, and even though it took place in a land far, far away and with people far, far removed from us, this passage of Scripture has real meaning for you and I today. And as sad as it is, and as beautiful as Landon was when I got to hold him yesterday, this, yesterday morning and yesterday evening, this affects my beautiful young grandchild just as it affects you and your family. So I want to give you two things. Two things of what this passage means for you and I. The first thing is very real, and you understand this, is that you and I have an enemy that seeks to destroy us. Amen. That's a good time. You and I have an enemy that seeks to destroy us. Very true, Joy. Thank you. Now, sometimes it seems like the enemy is us, right? We look in the mirror and we say, you're trying to kill me. We may think it's our spouse that's trying to kill us, and that may be true. It may be your boss, it may be your family, it may be whatever it is, but in the end, all of those are agents of that great dragon and serpent, Satan. You have an enemy that seeks to destroy you. And let me share with you, just so for your information, is Satan has a method of operation that is tried and true and tested throughout all time. He never diverts from this. He never changes this. And every time you see Satan tempt and try to test you and destroy you, he will do it by these three ways. And we see him not only in the garden, but we see it in the temptation of Christ. And in a moment, we'll see it in the New Testament church. The first way thing that Satan will always do is he will sow doubt by questioning God's word and God's goodness. And that's what he did. Did, did God say? He always sows doubt on the word of God and that God, whether or not God is truly good 
and truly wise. The second way that he'll attack you is that he'll sow discord by denying God's word. In other words, he wants you to start thinking when questioning it and saying, well, maybe this isn't as good. And so you start backbiting and you're talking upon yourself and saying, well, is God's word really true? Then thirdly, he's going to sow evil desires by diminishing God's promises and God's gift. And that's what he does each and every time. And that's what he did in the garden. He says, you can eat of all these trees and all of these fruits. Don't touch this one. But yet what Satan did is he diminished all the beauty and all the goodness of all the other trees and made one look better than the other. That's what Satan's going to do. Whether you're struggling with pornography, whether you're struggling with uh, lust, whether you're struggling with drinking, or whether you're struggling with gambling, or whether you're struggling with whatever it is, God or Satan will say that this here is better than anything else. That's what Satan does. His MO parallels that of 1 John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn to there real quickly. For 1 John tells us exactly how Satan works. His desire is to get you to disobey God by seeing that something else is better than Him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, He says to us, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that's a strong statement. What does He mean by in the world? Is He talking about this earth, this creation? Is it not good? It is. It may be tainted by sin. There may be some destructive things that are going on. But yes, we can enjoy a creation. We can enjoy the environment. Does he talk about the world as far as political systems, culture, movies, TV? No, he's not speaking of those things. But what is he speaking with? For he goes on to say, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In other words, all the promises and all the things that come from sin, he says, is not good for you. Look at how he tempts Eve. She saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. It appeals for our physical desires. And you and I have physical desires. Many of those things come from God. He helps us. Desire. Food is good. Amen, right? But we know that not all food is good for us. That's how he works. Eve looked and she looked at the fruit and it was delight to her eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. It appeals to our emotional desires. And our five senses, the things that we look. And say, man, that is kind of attractive. That is kind of, I, I can control that. I can have that. that. That looks like something I ought to try. Hence why we always use the feeling, you know, we feel this, right? We talked about that uh, earlier this morning in Sunday school. If it feels good, do it. We have now taken our emotions and we made them the main thing when it comes to making decisions. I mean, if I feel like I'm in love, what's wrong with it? 
If I feel this is good, what's wrong with it? And then she desired it. The pride of life that appeals to our intellectual desires. It's our ways in which we justify ourselves. I deserve this. I need this. Whatever sin you may be facing today, whatever temptation, this is exactly how Satan will work each and every time. He'll appeal to your physical desires, he'll appeal to your emotional desires, and he'll appeal to your intellectual desires. James 1 says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Let me tell you, Satan will not tempt you with something that you don't desire. He is a great studier of human nature. And he knows exactly what you need to get you off of God's plan. Hence why many times, the thing that I struggle with in my life, you may not struggle with it. I've never struggled with with drugs or alcohol. That always scared me, to be honest with you. But I've got three brothers that were all addicts, drinking and drugs. We all grew up in the same home, four boys, same mom, same dad. We went to the same school, but yet we were all tempted differently. And so Satan's temptation to you may look different than mine. It may be the same, but yet we need to realize that we're enticed. We are the ones that give him the ammunition to tempt us. He goes on to say that when we're lured and enticed by our own desires, then desires, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You have an enemy that seeks to destroy you. The second thing that we need to understand for today is that we are all now children of disobedience. Because of their disobedience and their desire to be independent from God, the introduction of sin and disobedience, we all fall short of God's holiness and we are all guilty of rebellion against His holiness. And here's where the problem is, because you may be sitting here saying, wait a second, Rob, no way. I am not. I remember one time I sat down in front of a man when I shared this. And he sat down with me, he's a friend. We have sat together, we have been in the house together, we've eaten together, we've been over, enjoyed each other's company. And he said, Rob, this does not describe me. And I'm paraphrasing his words. He says, I'm not evil, I'm not a bad guy. Said, yes, you are. We all are. We're all guilty. No, we may not be as bad as somebody else. And do you always notice somebody else is always Hitler, Attila Hun, and somebody other? We never compare ourselves to someone good. But yet it says, the Bible says, that you need to understand that we are all now children of disobedience. Ephesians 2 says, And we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, another term for Satan. And he says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In chapter 1 and 2, we were sons of God. Sons of obedience. And in one quick moment, we all became sons of disobedience. In other words, we all have inherited guilt. 
We are all counted guilty because of Adam's sin. The Bible tells us as one trespass, one sin, one failure led to condemnation for all men. So it was just not Adam and Eve that sinned and were condemned, but the whole human race was condemned by one action. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We all have inherited corruption. There is nothing within us that is good. We've corrupted a sinful nature. Our whole desire is to serve ourselves rather than serve God. So you need to understand, some of you may say, wait a second, I may do some sins, okay? But I'm not a sinner. But let me tell you what sin is. I like to use Wayne Grumman's definition because I believe it encapsulates very well what it means. For sin is our failure, any failure, to conform to God's moral law in our nature, in our attitude, in our actions. In other words, in our actions, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. For he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God, there is none that does good. Our desire is always to please ourselves, even in our works of good. It does not mean that I can't do good things. It doesn't mean that I, I, I can't do good to the homeless or good at a soup kitchen or help my neighbors or love my grandkids. It doesn't mean that those things aren't necessarily good, but what he's saying is it still is not good enough for God. For he says we've all come short of God's goodness. Why? He's called us to be perfect, even as He is perfect. So in our actions, we're unable to do spiritual good before God. It also means that our attitude is corrupted. We always talk about that. They need an attitude adjustment. It means that our attitude is totally rebellious towards God. For John says, you are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Who's he speaking of? Speaking of the devil, Satan. He says when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and a father of lies. So even our own attitudes, even when we try to do good things, our attitude is still rebellious. And all of us can understand this. Especially with our children. And what is it that we try to do? Why do we have such a high recidivism rate in our jail system? Put someone in jail for five years, ten years, they come out, what happens? Does it teach them their lesson? Why do they go back? Well, they broke the law, but it's because we can modify behavior. See, that's what we do. We try to modify behavior. But unless you change the heart, they're just going to go back. See, that's sometimes the problem with some of these, the AAs and the GAs and all the other types of things, even the Christian ones, even a Christian school. And I speak as a Christian school student, you know, product. They modified my behavior, but once I got out of their structure, what did we do? Boom. Why? Because my attitude. My attitude hasn't been changed. And so we say, well, let's try to change their attitude. And so we try to tell them, well, this is why you should do this. 
because it's better for you. But why do they not do it? For the third one, because in our nature, we totally lack anything before God. For he says in Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath. In other words, let me tell you, you're not a sinner because you do sinful things. You do sinful things because your heart is evil and desires it. And your heart is evil and does sinful things because your nature is. You really can't help it. You have no ability to change your nature, to change your attitude, or change your actions. You can do some modification. And you maybe even have a change of heart and want to be a better person. But it doesn't affect your nature. So as I look at that and I say, wait a second, we are all now children of disobedience because of Adam and Eve? That's not fair. Anyone want to agree with me? That doesn't seem fair. Why does my grandson Landon, why is he marked by sin? Because someone I don't even know wouldn't have done. Maybe you're like me. I would say, boy, if I was in that garden, I wouldn't have chose that way. Well, God didn't give us that option. And I know I'm giving you quite a bit here, but if you could stay with me. This is what we need to understand here in Genesis, what Jesus is telling us, what the Father is telling us, <coughs> is that God put Adam in charge of leading and protecting, teaching his wife and his family and protecting the garden. And when Adam failed to do so, he plunges the human race into irreversible condemnation. We do not stand here in sin because of Eve. The Bible says. The Bible says Eve was, was deceived, but Adam was not. You see that very clearly as we see in verse um, uh, chapter 6 where he says, And when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, she desired it and she took of its fruit and ate. But she also gave some to Adam who was what? with her. During that whole time, Eve and Adam never stood up and said, you know what, Satan, get out of here. Hey, serpent, get out of here. Or wait a second, you're misquoting what God said. He never is, quote, is, is recorded as saying, Eve, this is wrong. He was not deceived. He knew exactly what was going on. It was Adam that stood up and said, yeah, I'll willingly take this. Is that fair? I guess it's no more fair or less than Jesus taking responsibility for my sin and taking the responsibility for your sin. As the second Adam, he accepted responsibility of my sin and he took the consequences on our behalf. And this is the way that God has designed our world to work. For he says, for as by one man came death, Adam, but also by Jesus a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as that Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So is it fair? No. But is it fair that Jesus died for me and took the penalty of my sin? No. But thank God for that. And that's the call for you and I. That's the importance of this passage. Now I want you to stay with me real quickly and I'll take you through the rest of this passage. For the next 11 verses display God's character as He responds to their disobedience 
and the rebellion against him. And let me share with you number one. The first thing you and I need to understand is that God displays his holiness and judgment in the curses. And this is important. We're going to see God's character. He displays his holiness and judgment in the curses. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat of all your life. He does not only the serpent, but he also sees the physical serpent, but also the spiritual entity behind him. The word here where he dust means defeat. It means eating dust is a biblical metaphor for humiliation when we look in Scripture. You and I have used that when we use the phrase, eat my dust, or I'll shove your face in it. When it says you'll eat dust, he's not necessarily saying that he had legs and now he's crawling. It just means you will suffer humiliation and defeat. He says to the woman in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the fields. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. What's the curse? God says the mandate for you is the same. You're to be fruitful and you're to multiply. However, now in fruit, being fruitful and multiply, it is going to bring physical pain. It is going to be emotional pain. Maybe the emotional pain of barrenness or premature death of the mother and the child. But it's going to bring forth uh, death and pain. The mandate is the same just to do and to have dominion over the earth, but now the earth and all of creation will fight back. It will not submit willingly to man's domain. The second way God displays his character is by not destroying them. Look in verse 20. For the man the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. As Dustin will take us through next week, we're going to see that the story does not end at the garden. God does not destroy them, but allows them to continue to be fruitful and multiply as she begins to bear children and the world begins to be populated. We see that the animals begin to increase. The land continues to grow, not only from the garden, but as man extends now his dominion further and further. God does not destroy them. As he shows his grace. Which brings the question. So what is death that God spoke of in Genesis 2 chapter verse, or chapter 2 verse 6, uh, 17. When he says do not eat of that tree. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Is that not what Satan was accusing God? So was Satan right and God a liar? I think Jim Hamilton writes it best. When he says that death is an alienation from the life of God. It's a separation. Death truly removes the couple from the freedom and the innocence and lack of shame and fear that is found only in perfect obedience. And hence it can be truly said that you and I are dead today. 
We're the walking dead. That's a good thing for zombies, right? We're part of it. And like zombies, we're just walking through, just fulfilling the lust and the desires that we have. The Bible says the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why did He not destroy them? Because He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God shows His grace in not destroying them. The third way that He shows His His is displays his character is by displaying his providence in providing temporary clothing in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and Eve, his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. They tried to hold their own shame and their own guilt. They tried to hide from God, but God provides a temporary clothing from them. Animal skin. For the first time, death itself, physical death, finds itself as something else dies for their action. See, death, we have to understand, sin has real consequences. Others pay the price, and He covers their shame, and we see in their death, God accepts a substitute. And then fourthly, God displays His mercy in driving them from the garden. In verse 22, For after the judgments... After covering them, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest we reach, he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The Lord God therefore sent him from the Garden of Eden to worth the ground from which he was taken. He drove, the man out of the, uh, drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. How does that show God's mercy? In other words, God knew if they were to take that tree of life, it still had the properties of giving them life. And God says, I'm going to show my mercy by not allowing them to live forever in their sin condition. So death really now, physical death, is an act of God's mercy. We don't see it that way. Especially here in the Western world, we fight death at all costs, do we not? But yet, really, it's a method of mercy. And then let me give you the fifth thing here. The last fifth thing is God displays His love. He displays His love in promising redemption. And I want to go to back to verse 15. For those of you who are following, saying, what happened? Wait, wait a second. Verse 15 is the most important verse of all of chapter 3, and it is. Verse 15 may at first glance look at some type of thing. But there's a great promise in there as God displays His love in promising redemption. For He says, I will put enmity, speaking of the Satan and, and of the woman. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise her heel. I don't know if any of you have ever seen The, the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson. But he displays that in such a beautiful, beautiful way at the beginning of the film. As Jesus there is sitting in the garden and he's crying out in anguish. And as he's crying out in anguish, and he's doing it in Arabic, and I think he just did or Aramaic, and he's just doing it a great way because it's just it's such a language that just kind of pulls and draws you in. But as he's going through, it's beautifully uh, uh, shot as a snake is withering around. I don't know if you've seen that beginning of that uh, that. 
And that snake is going and, and, and Jesus is continually crying out. And you're saying, wait, does he not see the snake? What, you know, what do you see with the snake? And all of a sudden, Jesus stands up. And what does he do? As he gets up, he puts his foot down just as the snake reaches near him. And he crushes him with his heel. What a great image. Uh, I'm so glad he did. It had a great imagery. I remember we, Don and I, got to see a, um, a preview of that before it came out in theaters. And it was still kind of in a rough cut. But I just imagine when, when it was coming, I was kind of doing Don. And when he did that, I kind of hit Don, you know, uh, you know, look at that, look at that. I was so excited. If the movie ended there, I, it was so great. And that's what's happening here. Do we give it a big word? Because we always, in, 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 in scholarship and in, in biblical thing, we always have to give everything a big word. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the Latin means the first gospel. It's here that we see the first gospel. This propels us to the third theme of the story is redemption. So remember, we've been in creation. Today we see the fall, but here we get the first glimpse of the act is not finished. The story continues as we look forward to the redemptive act when Satan will be defeated and we will be with him. Let me end by this. And I know I've taken some time a little bit more this morning. But Genesis chapter 3 is more than just a funny little story. It's more than just a way to describe what happened. It is a real story with real consequences. Jesus believed it. Paul believed it. And let me share you with here, if this is nothing but a story and is not true, then salvation is not real. And you could have spent something better doing today than being here. You've wasted your time. But let me tell you, it's true and it's real. And because of it is, God, when God displays His character, He calls you and I to a response. Now, Adam and Eve's response to God's uh, display of His character were to rebel against Him. So here you are today. What is your response to God's display? Well, here's what I'm going to call you to. For our response to God's display of His character is to trust, number one, that that enemy that's seeking to destroy you, Satan, is actually a defeated enemy. He is a defeated enemy. You can say amen. That's all right. It won't hurt. It won't get you into heaven, but it's all right. It sounds good. Satan is a defeated enemy. If we were to turn to Revelation 20, chapter 20, you'll see that for a thousand years, he will be bound. But then he'll be released. But yet the end of it says, and they says uh, they, uh, the devil uh, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And even though that's a, a future reality, the present reality is that Jesus has stepped on the head of Satan. He has been defeated. His power over us is no longer uh, guaranteed for those that have called on Christ. The second response you and I need to make is that Christ has made us right with God by paying the penalty of our sin and by gaining God's favor by giving us His perfect obedience. What Adam could not do, Christ did. And therefore you and I can now be redeemed. For it says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus you and I might become the righteousness of God. 
And so I would call you here today, if you've never called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you do so today? Please turn and trust that Christ has made us right, that He's paid that penalty of sin. And then the third thing that God is calling us to trust is to be vigilant in protecting ourselves from Satan's temptation. For he still strikes at the heart of the Christian and the believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. People, friends, he's still out there. And he's sowing his seeds. Be vigilant. For the Bible tells us he's a roaring lion seeking to devour. If you're in the throes of that today, we're going to ask you in a little bit to come up and uh, Dustin and, and I'm going to ask Landon to join with him are going to pray for you here after the service. If you're here today and you feel the breath and the roar of his voice, then come up forward. Find out how you can become a new creature. Find out how you can become a Christian. Find out how you can fight Satan's battles. Be vigilant. Adam and Eve were left alone in that case. But you and I have a community of believers to fight together. And Father, we ask for you to help us and give us strength to realize the truth found in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, I find why I, am not, why I do not deserve to be loved by you. But I also find that promise that you do love us and that you will restore us. Thank you for the truths that are found in this passage. Strengthen us for this battle. Call on those who do not know you this morning that they may proclaim that you are Lord. We thank you for this in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.